The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Well, Father, thanks for being here. Welcome, sir. Father, I wanted to begin with uh, just a little five-minute Francis update, and there has uh, been a little more of this airplane interview that Francis recently gave. A little more of that has been released, and there have been some headlines going around today where uh, Francis apparently said that he is not afraid of schisms within the church, and he says this in regards to the conservative Catholics, particularly in the United States, who have criticized Francis. He, we mentioned last time how he said he is honored to be criticized by the conservative Catholics in the United States. And so he kind of pits these conservative and liberal Catholics against each other, and he says that he is not afraid of a schism in the church. What are your thoughts on that, Father? How do you interpret that? Well, remember, I mean, if you're a ecumenist like Francis, then, I mean, there's a divine revelation such as it, they, they hold it, the modernists understand it, in all religions. So you don't have to really belong to any one true faith to be saved. Um, so, I mean, as far as salvation, it doesn't really matter. You know, as long as you're sincere, as long as your beliefs are sincerely held, I guess the modernists would give you that much, uh, that you can be saved through all the different religions. So what difference does schism make anyway? Why does it even matter, you know? Uh, but I think what Francis is really, that is to a modernist. To us, it does. To modernists, why would they even care about schism? But also, um, it's interesting what he says, though, in that interview. I didn't read the whole thing, but I read part of it, and that was one of the parts I read. And that is, uh, he says that schism is cutting yourself off from the, from the people. From the people. And what he's actually saying is true in the sense that uh, traditional Catholics often regard schism as a matter of cutting oneself off from the supreme pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church, a true pope, and denying his authority to govern them, right? But it, it is also true that the Catholic Church recognizes schism as cutting oneself off of, out of communion with the faithful, and that can be true of a pope. Even a true pope can go into schism, can become a schismatic pope, by cutting himself off from those who are still practicing the faith and cutting himself off from them because they are practicing the faith. And that's very interesting in terms of what the Novus Ordo has done and basically saying, okay, the, uh, for the first 20 years, from 1968 to 1988, they were trying to obliterate, annihilate the traditional mass and absolutely banned it. And then after Archbishop Lefebvre consecrated bishops in 1988, they began to slowly allow it, even just calling it the extraordinary form, like some sort of uh, privilege within their Novus Ordo Church that they kind of tolerate because they really don't want it, but they're willing to put up with it because they have to. Otherwise, they'd lose an awful lot of people. And so already the terminology indicates that this is something we really tried to ban, didn't succeed. Now we have to tolerate it, but it's only tolerated. So they're still communicating this idea through this extraordinary form nomenclature that uh, this is not really something that has a proper place within their church. We're just making room for it here uh, as though it's some sort of a uh, an undesirable relative that we wish would go away. Um, so, again, what does this indicate in terms of schism in the church's understanding that cutting yourself off from those of the faithful who are practicing the faith because they're practicing the traditional faith? I mean, this, this basically is textbook schism in, uh, in, in keeping those at arm's length. 
and begrudgingly acknowledging that they can have a place in your church too, but we wish they, we, we, that's not our first choice. In any case, Tom, uh, as far as schism goes, again, you know, Francis has said he finds it an honor to be criticized by the conservative Americans and so on. But he also said in that interview now that all criticism is helpful, or every criticism is helpful. And I would say that statement of Francis again is misleading because criticism can be helpful if it's taken seriously and is met with humility and self, you know, reexamination to determine, well, is that, is that criticism justified? But criticism is not helpful when it is met with contempt, when it is met with ridicule, when a person says, hey, look, I love it when you criticize me because it makes me feel better about myself just because you're against me. I mean, that's what, that makes what Pete Francis says, again, untrue in his case. Criticism is not helpful. If he meets that criticism with derision and contempt and says, basically, I'm proud of myself, uh, it makes me happy when you criticize me because uh, you're so wrong and I'm so right. That's not helpful criticism. It's not helpful for him anyway, that's for sure. So again, uh, you know, at first glance, one might read what Francis says and think, well, it sounds kind of okay, maybe. But then when you begin to actually reason it through and think about it and interpret it into some language known to man, you interpret it out of modernist lingo and you translate it into some intelligent language, then you realize what he's saying here is not good. In light of the Catholic faith, it's not good. And Father, I, I also skimmed through some of the uh, some of the interview, and the thing that really struck me the most was this uh, classification of so-called liberal Catholics mm-hmm. and the conservative Catholics. And mm-hmm. Francis constantly harps on that and tries to draw this distinction between the two. And that idea is is just so totally foreign to a real Catholic because it's there, there there's no such thing as a a liberal Catholic and a in a conservative Catholic. Mm-hmm. You're you're either a Catholic or you're not a Catholic. Right. Exactly. But, there's no such thing as a traditional Catholic and a non-traditional Catholic. There, there can be no such thing as a non-traditional Catholic. Because Catholicism recognizes tradition as a father of divine revelation and the work of the Holy Ghost. In the same, by the same token, you're right, Tom. Liberalism and Catholicism have no place in a church that believes in one true God, father of one true divine son who became man and established one true church with one true faith and one true religion. Um, it just doesn't compute. You know? but, and, uh, this- but, but Francis does... Uh, not only admit these distinctions, but he actually harps on these distinctions. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that that viewpoint seems to be very widespread today, <laughs> where religion is almost relegated to some kind of pastime, essentially, where it's it's something that you do on the weekends sometimes, and you know just just have different flavors of it. Some some of us are conservative, some of us are more liberal, but it doesn't really matter. And uh, I think that that's really totally contrary to what a real Catholic knows about the faith. But I found that very striking. Well, if you're a humanist like the modernists, and you think that all these different religions are still, for example, ice cream, but they're just different flavors of mm-hmm. ice cream, you know. But to each his own, it's a matter of taste mm-hmm. and his own personal religious experience. But it, you know, they all ultimately are experiences of, of one God, just different God. He manifests himself in different ways, even contradictory ways. But. Ultimately, the modernist idea is that all of these religious experiences that gave rise to the different religions, all of these different religious religious experiences are going to coalesce into one common religious experience of mankind, which is going to be then the seedbed for the one world religion. And um, But in order to get there, you have to break down the dogmas of the different religious sects and Ultimately, you have to break down the dogmas of the Catholic religion itself. You have to turn the dogmas into myths, because myths are very, very pliable. And uh, and when you read the document, uh, the Instrumentum Laboris, that they've got prepared for this Synod on the Amazon, which is coming up in October, <clears throat> that's something that comes through very, very clearly. It's mythology. You're reading mythology. I mean, even they're talking about the Amazon speaking, hearing the voice of the Amazon, and uh, so on. 
And the river, the Amazon River being like the artery, you know, carrying the life-giving waters. And um, even, the, even the talk about the indigenous people having this sort of happy-go-lucky, wonderful, carefree life until those evil, oddly enough, often Jesuit missionaries, came to impose their religion and their culture on these people and robbed them of their indigenous culture and brought pain and suffering to them. This is pure myth, absolute mythology. The reality of life in the Amazon jungle among the indigenous peoples was very cruel and very brutal and very, um, well, I mean, you'd have to see in it a kind of uh, Satanism, even in the way they treated the babies, right, who were defective, or they thought were, the elderly. This was no, uh, this was no paradise that they created um, in the Amazon jungle, as it were the Garden of Eden. This is mythology that Francis is creating. It was a very brutal, horrible life, uh, and the, the tribalism. But now Francis wants to like recreate this myth to drive us back to that because he's got this going in his mind about how this puts us at, at peace with nature and there we can see the face of God in the, in the, in the nature of the Amazon. Even the idea that the Amazon is the, the lungs of the world. Have you heard that? Yes. They keep saying it. Francis says that over and over again. He says, this, this is the lung of the earth, right? And uh, scientists will tell you this stuff's not true. Right. Uh, but the idea, again, of this being a, an actual physical uh, living organism with a, an organ like lungs and so on, they're trying to personify the earth. The ultimate objective seems to be to feed into this mentality that Gaia worship, the earth is a living organism, and we're like mo microbes you know, on the face of the earth, and some microbes are bad and will make you very sick. And humanity is a bad microbe, and we're creating illness in the world because we are, we are just misfits here. You know? And somehow we have to get with it and stop sickening the Mother Earth. You know? Again, it's pure mythology. Dr. Catholicism. That's right. <clears throat> well, Father, I would like to return to this email that we've been referencing in the last couple of programs concerning the Protestant objections. There's just a couple left that I wanted to finish up. Uh, we, we received a couple emails from viewers uh, thanking you for for uh, these last couple of programs where we've talked about this. One in particular is from a uh, from a recent convert to the Catholic faith from Protestantism, and he said that he found the videos very helpful because there are still certain points of Catholicism that he struggled to explain and comprehend, and, and the videos have, have helped him immensely. So he thanks you for that. Uh, one in particular, though, we, we had a, a follow-up question to last week's program where we talked about the uh, forgiveness of sin, um, specifically in John twenty twenty three, uh, where our Lord gave the power to forgive sins to his apostles. And this, this viewer wrote in and said, uh, how do you resolve Matthew six fifteen and Matthew eighteen thirty five about not forgiving God? He would not forgive you with this uh, quote from John twenty twenty three, retaining forgiveness. So how do you uh, how do you solve the uh, differences that he perceives in these scriptures. Well, in, in appealing to the one reference of St. Matthew, which is in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, mm -hmm. and the other that comes later in the Gospel of St. Matthew, to the effect that God will not forgive those of us who refuse to forgive others, right? right. And our Lord told a number of parables about that, and they're very, very uh, uh, powerful. Right? About the unforgiving steward whom the king had forgiven a debt of 10,000 talents. And this, then the servant went out and would not forgive a fellow servant of a very small debt. And the king's reaction you know, to reinstate the 10,000 talent debt and even have the offending servant committed to the torturers until the entire debt was paid all because he wouldn't forgive his fellow servant. So the message is very, very clear, unmistakable, you must forgive, right? And uh, in these 
also in the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, our Lord was very clear about the necessity. Unless you are willing to forgive each other, God will not forgive you. And what we pray in the, in the Our Father. Uh, Francis hasn't gotten to this part of it yet. Interesting to see what he makes of it when he does. But uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So there we're actually asking God to give us the forgiveness according to the measure that we are willing to give. Okay, so that's a very sobering thought. That especially for someone who is unwilling to forgive any offense given by another person. To ask God, well, forgive me the way I forgive others, and I don't. It's almost like saying, oh God, I'm asking you actually not to forgive me, because I am not willing to forgive another person. It's a uh, terrible thing to think or say. But there is no contradiction between that message and our Lord telling his apostles, who sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. And there are those who would say to you that it's not at that point after the resurrection that our Lord gave the apostles the power to forgive, but that he gave them the power to forgive on the night of the Last Supper when he made them priests. Uh, the night of the resurrection is when our Lord gave them the command to forgive. Right? Who sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Uh, because now the sacrifice of Calvary had been completed, the sacrifice of the redemption was accomplished, and now, yes, our Lord commissioned the apostles to extend the forgiveness of God to souls in the world. But this does not in any way contradict what our Lord says. I mean, the church's understanding on the power of the keys to bind and to loose, of which the power of forgiveness is, is an extension, is, what is included. Um, the church's understanding is that in order for a person to be forgiven, the person has to be genuinely repentant. One has to have true contrition for sin. The church has always taught that. It's not as though our Lord said to the apostles, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. And you can just do this arbitrarily. I didn't, I didn't say that. That you can just forgive or not forgive arbitrarily, depending on what kind of mood you're in. The fact is, it's very clear in our Lord's teaching. Again, this is a matter of looking at the whole gospel and not just isolating a part here and isolating a part there. Um, that the one, in order to be forgiven, one has to be truly repentant and one has to have true contrition. Now, what does that mean? In the practical order, it means that one must be moved by a love for God. There has to be a love for God involved. If there is perfect love for God, that is, one loves God with his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and all his power of loving, then that forgives all sins. You know? um, but if one does not have that perfect love for God, one needs the power of the sacrament of penance, where in which our Lord Jesus Christ crucified makes up what is lacking in us of the love for God necessary for complete, perfect contrition and perfect repentance. Both, I mean, the love for God that is perfect, that re receives forgiveness from God for sin, because it is not only perfect love for God, but perfect repentance for sin and rejection of sin because of the love for God. That in itself depends absolutely on the merits of Jesus Christ crucified. It's not as though the forgiveness that is given to a soul because of perfect love and therefore perfect repentance is somehow separate or distinct from the merits of our Lord crucified. The very grace that one receives from God to make that act of perfect love is possible only because of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And our Lord giving that grace to the soul, and the soul cooperating with that grace, our Lord is giving the, the efficacious grace to move a soul for the perfect love for God. Now we talk about the love that the saints have for God. And how many saints actually left this world with a perfect love for God? We don't know. We know one, the Blessed Mother, right? We have good reason to believe that St. Joseph also died with a perfect love for God. 
which not only uh, obtained the grace of, of forgiveness for all sin, but also the grace for the expiation of all, even the temporal punishment due to sin. Any bad example given by anyone uh, or to anyone. Now, St. Joseph, we know, was on a different plane of holiness, so we're not accusing him, you know, of he was conceived with original sin, that much we know. So was John the Baptist, right? As far as any sin that St. Joseph committed, there's no one who's been so bold as to accuse St. Joseph of actually um, yielding his will to sin in any way. I mean, even venial sin. But regardless, the perfect love for God uh, that uh, obtains the forgiveness of all sin, we believe that that was in the soul of St. Joseph, in case. And there are other saints also who, in the course of time, may well have died with that grace of a perfect love for God, that our Lord, through the merits of his sacrifice on the cross, obtained that grace for them, and they cooperated with it, and they loved God with their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. They fulfilled the first great commandment. But we'd also have to say reasonably that the vast majority of not only mankind, but even the vast majority of the souls in heaven now did not die with a perfect love for God. And uh, even if a soul on earth had a perfect love for God and thus forgiveness of all sins through the merits of Christ crucified, that soul, because of that love for God, would still go to confession, would not presume, oh, I have perfect love for God. Look, all my sins are already taken away. That soul would be humble enough to go to confession and to confess humbly and receive the absolution because Christ provided that. But what is, the sacrament of penance is primarily for the forgiveness of mortal sin for those who do not have the perfect love for God. And therefore, they do not have perfect contrition. They have what is called attrition. And so there's something lacking in their love for God that our Lord Jesus Christ, for the merits of his death on the cross, has to supply what is lacking in them so that mortal sin can be forgiven. And that's the power of the sacrament. Jesus Christ makes it powerful, makes it possible for those souls who love him somewhat, but don't love him perfectly, to be forgiven their mortal sins, because he supplies by his cross what is lacking in them, in their love and their contrition and their repentance for their sins. But if someone lacks repentance and contrition entirely, if someone is repenting of sin simply because it got him into trouble or is very inconvenient or it embarrassed him or whatever else, but he doesn't repent at all because of love for God. He doesn't really repent. If one, done, one does not have true contrition for sin, which is necessarily going to be based at least on an imperfect love for God, if one doesn't have that, then there's no true contrition. If one says, okay, I committed these sins and I do regret them and I really wish I hadn't done them, but I, I'm going to go back and do them over again anyway, there's no contrition then. He hasn't rejected the sin he hasn't rejected the occasions of sin. He's going to go right back and repeat the same sins over again. He hasn't rejected the sin out of love for God. The church understands that there's no power that can forgive that when there's no contrition. A priest could give absolution a million times. It would not forgive a single sin for someone who's not repentant. We understand that God is the ultimate decider in this. God has given this power to us, priests, to grant that forgiveness in his name. <clears throat> but we can only know what we have before us and understand what the person gives us of their dispositions. But God knows the interior disposition of the heart. If the person is not repentant, then God will not forgive. God, you might say, even cannot forgive. It would be contrary to his nature. Right? Uh, being all holy and all perfect and all just, as well as all merciful. Now, this finally gets us to the point where, that is brought up here. What about the person who harbors a grudge against someone else who wronged him, whether it stolen from him, injured him physically, injured his reputation, whatever it was, cost him some great good in some way, and this person feels injured or wounded by this this aggressor, right? This 
And so he harbors that and refuses to forgive. The question, Tom, comes in then, is there true repentance for his own sins? And the answer would be no. He's not willing to forgive. He says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But he knows that he's consciously harboring a grudge and resentment about another person. That's different from a person who feels resentment and feels wounded, but he doesn't prove it and he wants to get over it. And he blames himself for feeling that way. He's trying not to do that. But somebody who embraces that resentment, who harbors it and encourages it and so on, that person is not really repentant for his own sins. He cannot have the necessary disposition. He cannot have the necessary habitus of the soul of love for God that harbors a certain hatred and resentment for his neighbor and yet approach God for forgiveness. So uh, there's no contradiction between what our Lord tells the apostles the night of the resurrection and what he says elsewhere about God will not forgive those who will not forgive because it's understood here that they have to have true repentance and true contrition to be forgiven by any priest, even to be forgiven by God. Mm -hmm. And Father, one thing in regards to the sacrament of penance, you mentioned you know, taking the scripture as a whole rather than kind of cherry-picking one, one or two verses. And I believe it was just a matter of days ago where we, we read in the Gospel of the Mass the story of the ten lepers who our Lord um, <clears throat> cleansed, and he commanded them all to show themselves to the priest. And, you know, it wasn't any kind of just arbitrary suggestion or something. This was an actual command that our Lord gave to them, show yourselves to the priest. And I believe that that applies through extension to all of us as well. Mm -hmm. So even if, you know, in this example that we read in the gospel, we have our Lord actually forgiving these lepers uh, of their sins. And um, yet, even, even though they are forgiven, our Lord still commands them to show themselves to the priest. And well, that was the Jewish law, though. Before they could enter society, they had to be ruled clean. Otherwise, if they were still lepers, they were subject to being stoned and driven from society. You know? But, Tom, you're right. I mean, there, there are certainly fathers of the church who interpret this to, to our Lord saying, go follow the protocol. The priests have the power to certify you to be cleansed, so go there and get that certification. But the fact is, they were cleansed before they got there. And you might ask, well, why were they cleansed? Because they were obeying, they were obeying Christ in going to do that. Now, the priest, obviously, of the old law, did not have the power to cleanse the leprosy. So they could merely certify outwardly, legally, that the, soul, that the body was cleansed, but they couldn't cleanse the soul. So our Lord didn't require them to get all the way to the priest as though the priest was the one who was actually going to be doing the, the, the forgiving, or the, I should say, the cleansing, right? If our Lord had allowed them to go all the way to the priest, and the priest inspected them and said, okay, you're clean, one could have claimed, well, I mean, the priest of the old law evidently was the one who accomplished this, accomplished this, uh, you know, there, there could be some argument about it, perhaps. But they were on their way, and because of their obedience to the command of Christ, they were willing to do this, that God gave them that that cleansing. The, the curious thing about that parable, or that this wasn't a parable, it was an actual event in their Lord's life. The curious thing, and this is something that nobody, I've never heard anybody mention this for some reason, but you had, let's say, nine Jews and one Samaritan. Now the Jews had by law to go to the priest in the temple and to be certified cleansed. But the Samaritan wasn't one of them. The Samaritan was one of the lepers, but he wasn't a Jew. And for him to go to a Jewish priest to be certified cleansed, for a, for a, a Samaritan, that wasn't the way they did things. I mean, ordinarily, the Samaritan were he not a leper, wouldn't have even been accepted into the company of the nine Jews because it was the leprosy that drew, that drew them together. But ordinarily, the Jews hated the Samaritans, despised them, detested them as being half-breeds who came back from their, back from their uh, exile and had imbibed the pagan practices, set up their own temple, and were running kind of a counter-religion you know, the, the, in, within the territory of what had been the ten northern tribes that broke away after Solomon. 
the Jews ordinarily wouldn't even talk to Samaritans, you know, just as a form of uh, re resentment and contempt against them. So the fact that you have these nine Jews and this one Samaritan bound together by their leprosy is one thing. But when they all, including the Samaritan, are going off to show themselves to the Jewish priest, first of all, you have to ask yourself, well, how far would they get before somebody would stop them because they're lepers and they kind of have to go in to find the Jewish priest to certify, you know? Um, but second of all, what would the Jewish priest do when he got to a Samaritan who had come to him to be certified clean, you know? So of all the people who would, when he was cleansed, not go and show himself to the priest, but come right back to our Lord, it would be the Samaritan. Because he, as a Samaritan, would, would be quite out of place, you might say. He was just obeying Christ in doing that. But he knew the source of the power uh, and the love of God that had cleansed him. He came back to thank our Lord for that. Not the law, or the priest who represented the old law. Uh, one might actually use that argument against you, though. One might say, well, look, Christ healed them. They never even got to the priest, right? And sure, they were willing to go, but Christ said, okay, you're willing to go, so I'll just heal you anyway. And you don't even have to go to the priest. One might t take that tack, too, but it wouldn't be just. It wouldn't be right, because it's not the point that our Lord is making there. Well, Father, if we can move on from the uh, sacrament of penance, let's move on to the sacrament of holy orders. And a uh, related topic here is the question of celibacy. Uh, so this Protestant objector says that celibacy is not biblical because many of the apostles were married. Um, and they say that it's unnatural that celibacy is a, quote, dogma of the Catholic Church. In Genesis, God says it is not good for man to be alone. They say, just look at all the evil that celibacy has produced in the church with the sexual abuse scandals. And they also quote here the uh, first book of Timothy, uh, where it says that in the last times, some shall depart from the faith uh, and they shall forbid to marry, um, among other things. So how, how, do you, how do you tackle this idea, Father, that celibacy is not biblical? Well, point by point by point, each point is wrong. But each point is wrong in a unique way. There is no forbidding to marry. Uh, in the Catholic Church, quite the contrary. The Church regards marriage as elevated by God to the role of a sacrament. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, that criticism certainly doesn't apply to the Catholic Church, that there are those who are called by God to marry. But there are those who are called by God to, to exercise the priesthood, and they find our Lord as their model, and our Lord was not married. Um, so priests uh, are not forbidden to marry, but uh, in the sense that uh, uh, if they have the right to choose and to discern what their vocation is, if God calls them. And so if they decide that they are called to the married state, they, they certainly are looked upon as uh, having the right to marry right, within the church. But in the, in the Roman rite, in the Latin rite, um, priests from the very early centuries uh, were held to celibacy um, to follow the example of our Lord and to be free of other attachments that could impede their living, their priesthood to the full. And the priest has to be available to all, has to be the father to all. And uh, the obligations of married life can be a true obstacle to that. I've heard even not only Eastern Rite Catholic priests tell me that, I've even heard Greek Orthodox non-Catholic clergy tell me that celibacy actually is a very, very good idea and a very important thing. Even in the Eastern Rite of the Catholic Church where a, a priest is allowed to marry and to have a wife, a bishop is not, because a bishop, again, has to be completely devoted to the care of his souls, of his flock. And so they, too, recognize that celibacy at some place is required, even though they limit it to the bishops. They still recognize that celibacy is a good thing and a necessary thing for those who are going to be completely devoted to the care of souls and trusted to them. <clears throat> But, you know, the idea that it is not good for men to be alone, 
Well, that's true. But a priest isn't alone. No. <laughs> I mean, a priest, you know, has his faith and his hope and his love for God. And, um, I mean, let's face it, when a soldier goes to war, he's alone in a sense, you know, so uh, he may have to go to defend his country. Okay, so there are times when even a married man has to be alone, but that's because he's uh, devoting his time and his effort to doing something that is supremely good and necessary, even to defend his wife and his children, necessarily. So, um, but a priest is, is not alone, clearly, and uh, um, so there's no problem with that. Um, the, um, I'm, I'm sorry, what are some of the other points that are made this, there? This idea that, um, that if, if marriage among priests were permitted, that it would do much to, uh, reduce the sexual abuse scandals. And oh, this idea that celibacy causes that is nonsense. And I, I've heard that's, that's, that's just propaganda. Um, Sean Hannity, the, um, popular conservative, um, talk show and, and TV personality, he, uh, he's made this point many times that he, is supposedly Catholic, but he disagrees with the church on this question of celibacy for a priest. And, and he says this exact thing that if, you know, if, if marriage among uh, priests were permitted, it would do so much to, to lessen these. Well, titles. Sean Hannity has some rather peculiar views on a number of things. <laughs> yes. That you know. doesn't say I disagree with him and, you know, everything. But there are some things he definitely has very wrong ideas about. Yes. But the fact is, we're looking at an invasion of homosexuals mm -hmm. that have been let in by Vatican II. And after, during and after Vatican II. And that is the issue, and it has nothing to do with celibacy whatsoever. Uh, they're invading the church because they're turning it into the kind of their own playground. Okay? And uh, people like Francis, going back in previous years up to Francis now, have flown open the, thrown open the, thrown open the floodgates, as it were, torn down the walls, and let the homosexual just overrun the church, okay? The Novus Ordo Church, that is, of Vatican II. Um, the fact is, though, that one has to restrain the appetites in order to devote his energies to the salvation of souls and the love for God. This is not a bad thing. This is not an evil thing at all. It is a very good thing. And um, if someone were to... I mean, the odd thing is, though, if you were to ask these very people, well, what if, a, what if a man, or a woman for that matter, were to say, I'm going to devote my life to scientific research to cure heart disease or to cure AIDS, you know, the big issue right now, because it, it all that involves sexuality. And of course, you know, we have to solve that problem because this is the most important thing in the world right, to these people. Uh, or I'm going to, we're going to cure cancer. If anybody were to say, I'm going to devote my entire life and all my energies and all my, my resources to find a cure for esophageal cancer or to find a cure for, uh, uh, you know, pancreatic cancer or something like that, you know, the, most of these people would say, oh, that's wonderful. This person is giving up family and home life to be so devoted to this, this great cause. But, as soon as somebody says, well, I'm going to do, devote my life and all of my energies and all my time and all my resources to serving God and work for the salvation of souls, and then immediately they treat that as though that's something abhorrent, something uh, freakish, something even sinister. Like, what's wrong with this person? We better get them to a clinic right away and have them psychoanalyze. <clears throat> um, so... The world is becoming so perverted, and when I say the world is becoming so perverted, I mean the mind, even the thinking of conservative people is becoming so perverted by the propaganda that they would almost find celibacy to be more problematic than what a, an Epstein did, who devoted his life to perversion. His whole life was about perversion. There are those who actually today would find celibacy, something embraced out of love for God and to leave oneself free to serve God. They would find that more problematic and more troubling than what the Epstein did. And I, when I say there are those, I guess I'm talking about mostly Democrats. 
who would be more upset about celibacy than they would be even by someone who devoted his life to perversion or abortion. If somebody were to say, I'm going to devote my whole life to aborting babies, the Democrats would say, oh, this person is so wonderful, devoting their life to this great cause. But those evil priests, you know, who claim to be celibate, but I mean ones who really are, not just the fakes and the frauds, not just the pedophiles and the pederasts and, and the homosexuals. <clears throat> I'm not talking about them, but the ones who really dedicate themselves to a life of celibacy and genuine service of God and a real sacrifice to God. They are, they will be looked down upon and despised as though there's something wrong with them. Because that's, they would say that's not natural. So they would say it's natural for a woman to abort her baby. It's natural. It's natural for a man to think he's a woman for a day or two and then decide otherwise. It's natural. But it's not natural for a man or a woman to dedicate their purity, their virginity, their celibacy in the service of God. That's what the leftists cannot stand. Father, I think perhaps one of the uh, motivating factors behind this, this claim that uh, a um, marriage among priests would do much to lessen the sexual abuse crisis, I, I think that, that there's a, behind that is a total ignorance, uh, total disregarding of the power of grace. Mm-hmm. If someone just views this from, a, from a, a purely natural standpoint, mm-hmm. they, they can't even imagine something mm-hmm. like this. You know, they can't imagine grace overcoming mm-hmm. nature or grace being more powerful well, you know, than nature. Well, you're absolutely right. They just can't imagine anyone restraining Exactly. Their because they view passions. it from, from a purely natural standpoint, 100% natural That's standpoint. No, absolutely right. No concept of... No wonder they're mistrustful and they say it can't be true. It can't be honest. It's got to be a fraud mm-hmm. and a front. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact is, I mean, the priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church has shown not by those who fail, but by those who succeed uh, in honorably living their life of celibacy, that it is possible to restrain those impulses for the sake of a, of a greater good. And uh, in this case, the supernatural good, the salvation of souls. Uh, and, and that is another reason why someone who really lives a celibate life in the world today is considered not only countercultural, but they're kind of a rebuke to the world in its perversions. I mean, our Lord Himself, when when He taught, when He taught about purity, and He taught about no divorce and fidelity to one's spouse and so on. People were very offended that He would say such a thing because they took it personally that He was rebuking them for their perversions. And so, anybody who stands up for Virtue these days is going to be is going to be uh, subject to persecution. Saint Paul says, anyone who who tries to live in a godly fashion in this world, anyone who lives in a godly fashion in this world is going to be subject to persecution. He just says it point blank, and we see that 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 is absolutely true. Remember the cultural Marxists. So came their their flagship was the uh, the. Uh, uh, Oh, I'll be out of a senior moment here. The um, <laughs> the Frankfurt School, okay, right. the, the Frankfurt School, the Frankfurt Schule, and these are psychologists and psychiatrists who set about trying to. They had the goal of subverting the morality of the West to soften it up to receive Marxism, to co- make it communist. They saw Christianity and its morality as what immunized the West against communist subversion. So their role, they said, was to undertake this culture war. And they referred to it as cultural Marxism. We're going to break down the morality of the West. And their whole purpose was to do what what the prophet Isaiah condemned. He said, woe to those who call good evil and evil good. And that's what their intention was, exactly that. To take virtue and make it look vicious, and to take vice and make it look virtuous, so that people would admire what was vicious and despise, detest, even hate what was virtuous. And this uh, reaction against celibacy is part of that. 
the cultural Marxist success that they get people to look upon the celibacy uh, of the priest as being something abhorrent and fake. Um, but, and in some cases, I mean, the, the, the modernists, in fact, have lent uh, a lot of credence to that by the damage they've done by attacking the church from within. Right. Father, you, you mentioned our Lord in the gospel speaking on matters of, of purity and, and abstinence, and even, even the apostles took scandal at some of the things that our Lord said because at that point they were still so worldly-minded, but once they were confirmed in their faith and received the Holy Ghost, they, they had a, a more a supernatural perspective uh, on these things. But, you know, uh, I think the leading voice perhaps on the... Uh, the perversion of this whole idea today is Francis, where he, he's talked about yeah. how this this idea of, of a life of purity and chastity and abstinence, that this is only some kind of mythical I, I, ideal that's not mm. really necessarily uh, possible, possible really. To, to attain to. You can't hold people to it. He's even gone, gone on record as saying publicly that, you know, sins of the flesh are the lowest, the least possible sins. Huh. Good. So, I mean, this is contrary to the teaching of the Catholic Church, which regards them as mortal sins, ex toto generis suo, they're just mortally sinful. And that's a direct contradiction of Our Lady of Fatima as well, right? Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Father, This is the modernist morality that Francis represents. Mm -hmm. It's not Catholic morality. We have just a few minutes left, Father, and we have uh, two final points that I wanted to get through just really quickly, if we could. Uh, this one here is in regards to divorce and remarriage. Uh, they say that in Matthew 5.32, Jesus says that divorce and remarriage is permissible if your partner has committed adultery, yet the Catholic Church teaches that remarriage in this case is still wrong. So the Catholic Church's teaching contradicts the words of our Lord. No, it just contradicts their interpretation. Okay? But this is the trouble when you get all these different translations of the Bible. And as Protestants, they have no control over whether what their translation is even accurate or not. Mm -hmm. you know, so they don't even know if what they've got there. Uh, that they're carrying around in the Bible it really corresponds to the true teaching of our Lord because it had to be printed and translated and edited and all the rest, you know. <laughs> Many a slip between cup and lip, you know. And that is true when try as somebody individually says, I'm going to interpret the Bible and decide what God meant by that. Right. And all I have is this <laughs> translation and I don't even know who did it for me or what, what their qualifications were. And they certainly weren't infallible in uh, translating it. So anyway, only the Catholic Church traditionally or historically had an authority that was given by God that could say, okay, this translation of the sacred scripture is accurate, but there's nothing in here that is contrary to the true faith of Christ. But we Catholics have that, okay? And, um, but, um, you know, if one reads that text from sacred scripture that is being quasi-quoted here, what our Lord is actually saying is, for a man to put away his wife, and then there's like a, 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 well, I guess they didn't use parentheses, but I guess we would, except for reasons of immorality, which is interpreted by many to be for reasons of adultery, that they betrayed the marriage vow, close parentheses, and takes another. So the point is, that is a compound sentence, okay? And our Lord's statement, except for reason of immorality, refers to putting away the wife, just putting her away. Because it's not just a matter of putting away a woman and taking another wife that makes it wrong. Even just putting a wife away is wrong. But our Lord says there can be a justification for that, if she is guilty of adultery and infidelity, which is exactly what the church still teaches. Okay. But what this writer is trying to do is trying to say that our Lord was speaking contrary to what he had said, was actually contradicting himself by saying, well, there is one reason you can put away a wife and take another wife, and that is if your wife has committed adultery. But that contradicts what our Lord had already said. And our Lord says, if any man puts away his wife and takes another, he commits adultery. And the woman, in taking another husband, commits adultery. So, um, you know, one could even say, okay, 
if, if their interpretation were, were correct, one could actually keep reading and say, well, a man who puts away his wife and takes another commits adultery. But then, if that were the case, if what they're saying is true, if the husband has committed adultery, then why would the wife not be free to go ahead and get another husband? But our Lord doesn't say that. Our Lord says the wife he puts away, if she takes another husband, she commits adultery. Even though her husband committed adultery in putting her away. In, in other words, these false interpretations inevitably lead to internal contradictions. And our Lord does not contradict himself. The fact is, the idea of putting a wife away can be justified if she has uh, committed adultery and proven unfaithful. But that does not entitle the man to take another wife. Tom, even from a just, just common sense point of view, I mean, if the individual who wrote that were in the room here sitting right now, okay, I mean, I'm sure they'd have to agree that if our Lord really said what they want him to have said here, that, well, you could put away a spouse or a wife if she's unfaithful. Well, think about that. Well, think about what that would mean. So a man has a wife he wants to get rid of. He wants to marry somebody else. If he can get his wife to be unfaithful to him, it's okay. So why can't he just go ahead and be distant to her, make her feel unloved, maybe drive her into the arms of another man, pressure her, even pay somebody to try to lure her away and, and you know, take advantage of her or something, anything, just to get her guilty so he's free. Well, if that's what our Lord is saying here, uh, then that's what that individual is, as this individual is saying, he's saying it's okay. As long as the wife is unfaithful, the man can go and get another wife, put her away and get somebody else he wants. And you just know how that would turn out in reality, as though our Lord would be surprised to find out that men were actually taking him up on that? No. It's the individuals who try to freelance interpret Scripture in their own way um, that who get into trouble. And they actually, um, they actually uh, interpret things such a way that they, they introduce contradictions into our Lord's own teachings to accommodate their own preferred interpretation. But it's clearly that's not what our Lord meant, and it's not what he said. And I think, Father, also, if one simply looks at the reaction of the apostles after our, our Lord says this, and how they, they're, they're totally astounded that he could possibly say something like the this. The apostles even afterwards questioned our Lord, how can this be? Yeah, they, they said it would be better, if this is true, what our Lord taught, it would be better to not but, even be married at all. Right, right. And, Which is astounding when you realize that after our Lord promised to give his own body and blood as their food and drink, we have no record in the gospel of the apostles going to our Lord privately and saying, how can this be? But when our Lord said, any man who puts away his wife and takes another commits adultery, and the wife put away who takes another husband commits adultery, this was so, so shocking to the apostles. It was just so accepted, so normal, so understood that the gospel tells us, and St. Mark tells us, the apostles themselves privately with our Lord later questioned him, how can this be? They challenged it. And our Lord's answer was, well, God gives the grace. This is the way it is. Right. Not only would they have to accept it, but they're the ones who would have to announce this to the world as the apostles. So, so uh, it really tells you how strictly our Lord held to this and the attempts of human beings to find fine print to get around it are perverse and they also uh, wind up not only in uh, sin, but they wind up in, in blasphemy, even essentially accusing our Lord of self-contradiction. Right. Well, Father, last point here, if we could, really quickly. Thank you for, for bearing with me. Uh, the, the final Protestant objection here to the Catholic faith is from this individual that says, In the Old Covenant, God forbade the drinking of animal blood. Yet, since Catholics believe that the wine becomes the blood, the blood of Christ, rather, the priests are drinking blood. How do you respond to that? 
They're drinking the, the actual living blood of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. But the Old Covenant forbade. The That's the Old Testament. Yeah. But, I mean, does this person not read the Acts of the Apostles? Well, first of all, I mean, this is on another plane. I understand that. But the Old Testament prohibitions do not apply. The ritualistic prohibitions of the Old Testament. I mean, we eat shrimp. I mean, for all we know, that person eats shrimp, too. You know? That would be forbidden in the Old Testament. Do they eat pork? If they have pork, pork roast, right? If they eat bacon, <clears throat> They're breaking the prescriptions of the Old Testament. So, I mean, you know, clearly, you know, I, I doubt that the person who wrote that you know, has any qualms about eating bacon and eggs for breakfast, but I don't know them. Just because it's a prescription of the Old Testament, because of the Old Testament prescriptions we no, lo- no longer oblige. What did, our, what, what did the apostles decide at the First Council of Jerusalem? They told the pagan converts, look, don't adulterate, don't fornicate, right? Obey the laws of purity and don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. But they didn't hold them to the rest of the law of Moses. That was the big controversy. The Jewish converts to Christianity wanted the pagans to have to observe the old, the entire old law of Moses. <clears throat> and uh, the, the apostles in the first council of Jerusalem, uh, in the first council of the apostles in Jerusalem in 50-51 AD decided no. They don't have to obey the ritualistic uh, rules of the Old Testament. They were gone. They were all given by God merely as a preparation for the coming of Christ, his sacrificial death and resurrection, and the founding of the New Covenant. So those who appeal to prescription of the Old Testament Testament to say, well, you're breaking the Old Testament, uh, and we say, well, I mean, you know, we're not Jews. I mean, we're, we're Christians, right? Christ um, brought us the New Testament, uh, Testament, and the apostles have told us, that, you know, what is what is right. We, we see the vision of St. Peter, who was on the rooftop in the midday, napping and dreaming about the tent laid down from heaven with the unclean and the clean animals in the tent, the voice coming to Peter, this happened three times successively. Peter, kill and eat. God forbid that I should eat anything unclean. And the voice from heaven came, do not call unclean what God has made clean. And then the, the you know, that's when the pagan emissary of the Roman soldier Cornelius showed up at the door and asked Peter to come to preach the gospel to his family. The man was a pagan. Peter wound up baptizing the entire family, the entire household, without making them Jews first. He just accepted them from paganism into the church immediately, which raised a lot of controversy. That's why the First Council of Jerusalem was held, to address that very question. Can you do that? Can pagans become Christians without first being Jews? That was the whole question. And those who said... No, they had to become Jews first. We're called the Judaizers. And they had to follow the, Moses, the law of Moses in order to qualify to become Christians. That's why St. Paul said, no, they don't have to follow the law. They don't have to, the law does not sanctify them. That was his real issue with the law. You know. uh, he was speaking specifically about the law of the Old Testament. Now, you know, Tom, with regard to this, this whole question about the blood of Christ, there are those who would say that because we eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, in obedience to Christ's direct command to do so, that we are cannibals. And I say, well, they should take that argument up with our Lord and tell him, you know, what are you saying here? Because those who walked away from our Lord understood his words to mean exactly that. Exactly what these people are now accusing you and me of doing because we're receiving our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Those people walked away from our Lord and would no longer be seen with him because they thought that's what he was saying. But the fact, they, the fact that they can't distinguish between mere natural worldly cannibalism and receiving a, a supernatural miraculous sacrament in which Jesus Christ, risen and glorified, is present as God and man, in this sacrament. If they can't see the difference between that, I, mean, I don't know that there's any real hope for them, except grace enlightening them 
to get past their prejudices. But I mean, the difference is the difference between heaven and and, and heaven and earth. The difference is that great between cannibalism and the reception of our Lord Jesus Christ glorified in the Blessed Sacrament. And ultimately, I mean, they have to understand the significance of this. The Jews, as I mentioned before, ate of the sacrifices that they offered to show their unity with the sacrifice, that they had part in, that they partook of the sacrifices that they offered to God. And so when our Lord gave his own body and blood, soul, and divinity, crucified, died, buried, risen, glorified in heaven, present now here among us as our Emmanuel, God with us. God, he was giving us the way to show that we are partaking in his sacrifice, that we have a share in his sacrifice. That's the significance of the Blessed Sacrament. That's the significance of Holy Communion. Right? Uh, it is by means of this, the consecration of the body and blood of Christ, that we show forth his death until he comes again in the Holy Mass, which is why we see the Holy Mass as the sacrifice of Calvary. St. Paul himself says, we show forth, as, long, as often as we do this, we show forth the death of Christ until he comes. Well, that's what we're showing. We're showing forth the sacrificial death of Christ. That's the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Straight from the words of St. Paul. And by partaking in Holy Communion, we are again showing our union with the sacrifice of Christ. Now, how could anybody who calls himself a Christian object to that? Unless he's just driven by prejudice. Unless he really is nothing but a protestant. One who is simply living a life in protest. In this case, living a life of protest against the true faith. Which is our Holy Catholic faith. Our traditional Holy Catholic faith. Which gets us back to the question. That is what we need to do. You know, people, people say to us sometimes, why are you talking about Francis? I don't care about Francis. You know, I don't care what he says. I just had somebody in the yard tell me the same thing. I mean, why are we taking time? We talked about the five-minute Francis to start the program. And there are those who would say, oh, I don't want to hear any more about Francis. You know? he has nothing, I have nothing to do with him. He has nothing to do with me, they say. But you know what? We have to talk about him. Why? Because he is the face of modernism. I mean, he's talking about the face of the Amazon, but he is the face of modernism. And we have all those people out there who still have the faith, but they don't know what to do. They're, they're, they're trapped <clears throat> by Francis. And um, even, even the conservative Novosorto types, they say, well, we don't, we don't hearken to Francis because we don't really think he speaks, you know, for the Catholic Church. So we're relying on Benedict XVI and John Paul II and, you know, going back to the real meaning of Vatican II. And we have to enable people to understand that Francis is Vatican II. He is what Vatican II was all about. That Vatican II was a revolution that started in process, but has brought us to Francis, right? And they have to stop this, uh, this, uh, this, this mirage or this myth that they're living and thinking, well, we can still uh, hearken to Vatican II and reject now what Francis is doing. All Francis is doing is basically going for broke to, to bring Vatican II to its logical and necessary conclusion. That's all he's trying to do. He's trying to fulfill the mandates of Vatican II. So people have to come to understand that the Vatican Council II and, uh, and John the Twenty-Third, Paul the Sixth, right all the way through, that they all had the vision of the Church of modernism. And Francis is just the current manifestation of this modernism. Uh, and, and Francis is now setting the stage for the next manifestation of modernism, uh, for the next one by these cardinals he's choosing, to go be even beyond Francis. So, um, you know, so the ultimate point in talking about all this is to try to make people understand this is all together. It's all one revolution from beginning to end. 
And the only way to practice the, the true Catholic faith is to reject the entire revolution and go back to practicing the traditional faith. That's, that's the message we must always come back to. Father, any final words before we end the program? Oh, Tom, that's dangerous to ask you that. <laughs> well, I would just say, God bless you all, and thank you for your support. Much appreciated, much needed. I, uh, I want to also thank you and our fine, our fine staff who contribute so much in so many hidden ways. You are rather visible. There are others who are less visible, but they also contribute to getting the program on the air. All their work is much appreciated. Absolutely. And the support of our viewers. Mm-hmm. If you can, spread the word, share the program with people. Hopefully, um, we'll find more and more people coming back to practice the traditional faith, finding their way home again, or perhaps some of them for the first time. That's right. Well, thank you, Father. Thank you for being here tonight. You're welcome, Tom. Thank you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and also to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.